Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, a podcast all about the North American model of conservation and your chance to dive into conversations about trends, research, and outdoor activities. It's time to get wild with the 2021 Conservation Media Award-winning host, Jason Creighton. Welcome back to the Conservation Unfiltered podcast presented by Conserve the Wild. I'm your host, Jason Creighton, and this is episode number 106, Social Sciences and Conservation. Today, I'm going to be talking with Rebecca Nemec. Rebecca is an interdisciplinary social scientist and an assistant professor in the Human Dimensions of Natural Resources Department at Colorado State University. Now, what exactly does that mean? Well, She works with conservation practitioners to help design and evaluate community outreach and engagement approaches for conservation. While conservation and the North American model have really focused on wildlife science, within the last 20 or so years, there's been a greater push to include social sciences as part of it. And she basically tries to work uh, with these conservation practitioners as uh, as I stated, to sort of help develop their social aspects in their conservation. And we're going to talk just about that. Why we even need, first, what is social science? Why we need social science, uh, even though it's not a part of the North American model of wildlife conservation. Um, and, you know, is it really going to have a positive impact? So let's just dive right in and let's talk to Rebecca. Before we keep going, a real quick question for you. Are you concerned with urban sprawl? Are you concerned with the threat of our increased human presence as put on wildlife and wild spaces? If so, an easy next step for you to try to help with this situation is to visit our Patreon page and become a monthly supporter. If you like this podcast, if you would like to help form a new nonprofit that helps combat and mitigate the effects of urbanization, visit patreon.com slash conserve the wild. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash conserve the wild. Go visit today and become a sponsor. Welcome back again, everyone. As you heard in the intro, a professional guest with us today. So a little bit of a switch up from last week in the informal BS session I had with Cody and Ethan. Uh, We're going to learn some stuff today from Rebecca Nemec. Rebecca, how are you? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm I'm always excited to talk to professional people um, because... I'm when it comes to conserva- conservation related topics, uh, while I consider myself versed, I'm not a professional. So this is my chance to learn and hopefully the listeners can do a little learning along with us. Fantastic. So I came across some of your work uh, in an article that I read recently, uh, integrating social science in the conservation planning. <sighs> so my first question, is what is social science? (laughs) 
That's that's a great question. Um, well, well, the social science they really kind of encompass a range of different classic and and kind of applied disciplines um, that are trying to really understand and describe and um, kind of predict social phenomenon. And what I mean by social phenomenon, I'm talking about humans and how humans behave, our policies what we do all the time. And um, so there's a lot of different disciplines. Some of those classic disciplines are things like sociology, anthropology, political science, psychology. Um, and, and it also encompasses those more kind of applied disciplines. So things like law and education and communication. But what really ties all of these disciplines together into this umbrella of social science is this focus on people and, and understanding how people behave. Well, I really feel like that could just drive someone crazy trying to figure out why people do what they do. Like, do you ever just feel like pulling your hair out as you're trying to decipher the decisions of people or a group of people? It's certainly a challenge. Absolutely. I think people are really, are really challenging to study and to understand. Um, and I'm always finding myself applying um, kind of lessons learned from my research to my own life as well, which is an interesting phenomenon. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the reason why I felt why I found your article, the article um, that you were a part of um, interesting. And the reason why um, I was drawn to it and really wanted to have you on is because I've talked to wildlife biologists on this show previously, and they've talked about the fact that, you know, they're trained in statistics and um, herd dynamics and, and, you know, habitat and all these different kinds of things. But one of the things that sort of gets very rushed over is the social impacts of, of some things. And that's something they need to sort of learn on the fly uh, whenever, you know, they get their first job for a state agency or something like that. So we know that we're using, or at least trying to apply social science to the plans that we put in place for conservation. But why? why like, why do we need to do that? What, what is the reason for social science in conservation? Because when I look at the North American model of wildlife conservation, I don't see social science in there anywhere. Right. So like, why, why do we care what people think about the decisions being made? Yeah, that's, it's a great question. And, and, um, and as you said, social science hasn't always really traditionally been a part of conservation decisions and, and, um, and, but it's really increasingly being used. And so this is kind of a new phenomenon in the past couple of decades. And, um, and I think the application of conservation social science has become increasingly popular really as researchers and practitioners have started to realize that um, addressing a lot of conservation challenges that we're dealing with these days really requires changing human behaviors or at least getting public support or policy support um, at different scales. And so, um, and, and there's been an increasing recognition that just kind of documenting, say, the environmental impact of our behaviors on ecosystems is often not enough. And, and sharing that impact, saying, hey, look, look at how we're impacting our ecosystems. Um, that's often not enough to, to change human behaviors and policies. And so, um, so I think this, this kind of recognition has led to an increasing number of people like myself who are really starting to study, okay, so, so what is the human side of things? What do we need to do to get people on board or to get people to engage in actions that positive and 
positively influence conservation or to um, promote policies that that um, effectively manage wildlife and promote conservation. Um, and so, um, so I think this is what has really led to this kind of shift here. And, and one thing I'll add is that um, another reason why social science is so critical is that people's actions can influence wildlife management and conservation, um, I would say in kind of two different key ways. And so one is those sort of more direct impacts. And so that's where you can think about like people planting plants, you know, habitat on their property, um, killing animals or not killing animals, um, any of those direct actions, maybe engaging in actions that impact climate change. Um, so those are direct ways in which people might influence conservation outcomes. Um, but then we also have those indirect ways. And what I mean by that is people can influence wildlife management and conservation um, by influencing policies or by donating or by voting. And so that has a huge impact on the way we manage wildlife and, and address conservation issues as well. And so given those direct and indirect impacts of people's behaviors, understanding people is, is super important. So what you're saying is that people aren't passionate about numbers and reports. Um, we need to sort of find ways to get them involved maybe more emotionally, because we're an emotion-based uh, species. Absolutely. And so there's, um, that is a key finding from a few decades of, of conservation social science research, which is that information about an issue is, um, is often important for influencing people's actions, but um, typically insufficient um, for actually leading to any sort of behavior change or changes in attitudes towards a conservation initiative. And, um, and that's because there's actually like tons and tons of other factors that influence people's decision-making. Um, people are irrational, even though we all want to see ourselves as rational. Um, and so we're often influenced exactly what you said by our emotions. We're influenced by the social context in which we're embedded. So who we talk to, what sort of information we get. We're influenced by a variety of other beliefs, such as who we trust um, and who's delivering the information. Um, and also, um, also things like costs and benefits to our own personal livelihoods and ways of life. And, and so there's all of these different factors that influence our decision making, which is why um, achieving any sort of behavior change or attitude change through outreach and education um, can be a lot more complex than just sharing those graphs, as you said. Okay, that, there's, there's a lot to unpack there. And we're, we're going to try to, we're going to try to keep it as um, simple as possible for a simple mind like myself. Um, all right, so when, when we're discussing this like my question is is it really is it a really a good idea to use sort of like that public perception of a policy or a management decision that a state agency or federal government might have like is it really important to care about how the public perceives it because like my question is does the public really know best like shouldn't we trust the the experts right the people that went to you know, study wildlife biology and that kind of thing? Yeah, it's a great question and something that I get asked a lot. Um, so I'll say um, two different things related to this. One, um, one is that um, if we don't kind of care what the public thinks, then oftentimes the public can, um, can really, uh, really make implementing conservation initiatives more challenging and less effective. And so an example of that is goes, um, 
this is my early days working in conservation. I was working in New Zealand on in some invasive species management efforts. Um, and, and I had just graduated with a degree in ecology um, as well as environmental studies. And I arrived in New Zealand and they tasked me with this, um, with going out to communities to try to figure out why there was so much opposition to some of the invasive mammalian control efforts there. And, um, and so I started getting embedded in this more social component of this conservation initiative. And, and what I realized is that there were so many deeper drivers of community opposition to invasive species management. They weren't just concerned about the invasive species. In fact, a lot of them did want those invasive species gone. Um, they were concerned because they weren't involved in decision-making. They didn't trust the folks who were implementing the conservation programs. They were concerned of the ways in which invasive species were being managed um, and that they didn't have control over kind of where it was happening. And so um, th that was one of the first things that I learned. And actually that opposition um, to invasive species control efforts was a key, key barrier to actually implementing a widespread invasive species control efforts. And so that was just one example where kind of not getting um, kind of public support can make it a lot more challenging to, to implement conservation initiatives. Um, and so that's one reason. Um, the other one is I would say that um, wildlife biology is so critically important um, for informing decisions, but at the end, um, all decisions about wildlife come down to people's values. Um, and that's because um, ultimately the decision about wildlife or conservation initiatives comes down to what do we want to see up there? Uh, what do we value the most? Um, and, and often there's these trade-offs, you know, between livelihoods, between ecosystem services, ecosystem health, between recreation, between all of these different things that people care about. And so, um, so trying to figure out what do we weigh in terms of like when we're making these management decisions, biological science can weigh into what outcomes we might see, but it can't tell us what we should prioritize in our decision-making. And that's where social science can, can help by at least feeding in information about what different people prioritize. Yeah, you know, both of those make a whole lot of sense. Um, anytime changes, you know, I'm based in Pennsylvania, anytime mm -hmm. our state game agency implements any changes, uh, you know, doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of public support there. Um, and sometimes people cite that it's, you know, well, they didn't talk to me. Um, but when you have, you know, three quarters of a million hunters or up to a million, depending on, on the year, um, it's hard to talk to every single one of them, right? <laughs> and just because you talked to them doesn't mean you're going to uh, actually implement every single person's idea. If you did that, you'd have a rule book that's way longer than it is now. Um, but to that, to that second point, Sort of talking about, um, you know, that priority system, it makes me think about the wolf situation currently, right? Uh, they've been listed on, as an endangered species. Um, past administration tried to delist them. Um, there have been some hunts. There was one in Wisconsin last year. Um, I think Idaho has had a hunt as well. Uh, and, you know, there keeps getting to be lawsuits and, and all these things, all, you know, different stuff like that around these hunts um, that are on the surface from an outsider view. Uh, you know, being in Pennsylvania, we don't have wolves. I look at it as, well, if they're making the decision that wolves need to be harvested, it's for an ecological reason. But you bring up conflicts of interest, right? Like if I'm a rancher and there's wolves around, that's not good for my livelihood and, and things like that. So, 
is there have you come across the million dollar idea of like how to convince people that the science is sound and this is the way we need to go when it when people are acting out of emotion either because they don't want to see any wolves killed or you know they're a rancher and you know they're worried about their livelihood absolutely um well i think it's a super interesting question. And one of the things that we've been working on here in Colorado, so we have, we, it, back in um, fall 2020, there was a ballot initiative, um, speaking of the public <laughs> having a say in wildlife management, um, there was a ballot initiative where uh, the public voted to reintroduce wolves into the state. And so, um, so one of the things that, that we're doing right now is trying to figure out, okay, because this is such an emotionally charged issue, how can we get people to have civil productive conversations about how to manage wolves in a way that works for a variety of different stakeholders? And, um, and it's those sort of conversations that I think are, are absolutely essential because otherwise we'll see what, what is happening in other states um, and happening it's these pendulum swings right where um one group gets power and they're like we should go all the way this way and manage wolves in this way and then another group maybe gets power and then they say we should manage wolves in this way um so it's always kind of changing based on who who kind of has power and so but instead we're, we're trying to say okay can we um, work together, bring people who are in conflict over this issue together, engage in dialogue, um, and try to figure out, okay, are there some solutions? Is there a management plan that we're really going to, um, that, that we can support, even if it's not ideal from either side of the issue, um, we could at least support it and say, kind of, my values, my voice is heard. And, and actually, what the, what the social science research suggests is that kind of process is essential in addition to infusing scientific information and actually having that process can help people um, pay more attention to scientific information because oftentimes people feel like they need to be heard. They need to have their values heard. They need to feel like they can trust agencies or organizations to listen to them um, before they then trust the information that they're getting from those organizations and agencies, if that makes sense. And so we're trying to integrate scientific information throughout that process, um, and but also make sure that people feel like they're, they're deeply involved in decision-making. And when I say we here, um, the process, the plan is being developed by Colorado Parks and Wildlife, the state wildlife agency, um, but I'm involved in, in some social science research related to it. Forgive me for being a little skeptical of the whole like civil discourse from opposing sides that that seems like something that is extremely lacking in in our society right now right um yeah and i mean you're the social scientist this is something that that i've heard a lot in the last mm -hmm. six years maybe is that when you present someone with facts it only hardens them in their own beliefs is that is that true like does that really happen it does. It's a phenomenon called confirmation bias and people have all sorts of cognitive, what we call cognitive biases like that, where they're always, um, and, and this is an example of one where people are seeking out information um, that, that confirms what they already thought and they're more likely to listen to that information, they're more likely to find it, and then they're more likely to internalize it than any information that um, does not confirm what they think. And um, and, and these biases are especially the case if you're just kind of doing this unidirectional flow of 
information, if that makes sense. So you're just kind of giving information to someone saying, here it is. Then um, there's all sorts of cognitive biases that can influence how people interpret that information. Um, but if you're starting to build a relationship with that person, you're building trust, you feel like their stakeholder, they feel like their stakeholder group is heard. Maybe they're receiving that information from their neighbor, their friend, their peer, someone in their social network, rather than the organization or agency themselves, um, then they may be less likely to, um, to kind of have those cognitive biases interfere with the way in which they receive that information and, um, and are influenced by it. So what I'm hearing from you is that this is important, right? This is something that we need to continually now like work on to try to find ways to connect with people on both ends of the spectrum, really the whole gamut, right? And get them to trust the state agency or the group in charge of whatever management decisions are being made. So are we going to see more state agencies and even, you know, fish and wildlife for the federal government? Like, are we going to see them employing more social scientists like yourself or working with, you know, contracting more social sciences, scientists to sort of de try to hopefully develop that trust? Absolutely. That's a great question. And I, I certainly hope so. <laughs> it's my answer, although maybe that's self-serving since I'm a social scientist, but you know, um, I think one of the, um, one of the things we are seeing is there's an increasing number of, um, of, of programs um, training students in conservation, social science, and job openings, and agencies and organizations focused on social science. So I think this is really a growing field. And and one of the things that that I want to mention that was mentioned briefly in that paper is that um, social scientists were not all like experts on the same thing. And so just like with ecological, with natural scientists, you might have like say you might have a geologist, you might have a biologist, you might have an ecologist. You have all of these folks focusing on different components of ecosystems, it's the same way with social scientists. And so I, for example, tend to study um, psychology. And so I look at like those cognitive biases, what influences individual people's decision-making, but then there's other social scientists who focus on policy and governance structures and how those change over time uh, or anthropologists who focus on kind of culture. Um, and, and so that's something um, that I'm really excited to see moving forward is those diversity of social scientists, just like there's that diversity of natural scientists really working together to, to try to figure out how do we build that trust? How do we, um, how do we make, create positive change where people are really working together to implement policies that work for everyone. Yeah, and so to continue talking about what was in that paper, um, part of it that, that you mentioned is that clear guidance is lacking on how to apply it. So like, should we be coming up with this sort of like overarching, like here's how you can apply it, or is it going to sort of depend on the state, the stakeholders, like is it sort of a moving target? Absolutely. Yeah. So I would say it, it does depend on the context in terms of what is needed. We, we developed a bit of a framework um, where we suggested um, broad ways in which social science could inform that planning. And, and I would say the, the first way in which social science can be really helpful is trying to understand kind of what is going on here. And so in the case of um, the Colorado ballot initiative, um, like some people were like, how did we end up with a ballot initiative? <laughs> like, how did we get here? And like, what what is what are gonna be some of the issues with reintroducing wolves, some of the challenges that we'll face? So that's an example of like kind of that first stage of conservation planning that social science can be really helpful with because it could look at like, okay, who, 
Um, what led, what series of social related events led to this phenomenon that's impacting a conservation or wildlife management program? And also kind of who are all the key players here? Like who are all the stakeholders involved? If we're going to have that process where we bring people together in decision-making, who should be there? <laughs> who should have a say? Who's gonna be impacted or who will impact this? So that's just one example of um, kind of more broadly how social science can influence a plan, but obviously the specifics of how that would be implemented would vary a lot by um, by context and so because the problem is going to be different um, depending on what you're working with. Um, but another way in which social science can be really helpful is also kind of developing um, what we call impact pathways or just interventions like you could imagine from the ecological side an intervention is like maybe we're manipulating how much we're hunting um, various animals so that would be an intervention. On the social side your interventions are things like education and outreach or changing policies or regulations that might influence people's behaviors. So social science can lend a lot of insight into how we might design those to most effectively um, kind of change attitudes, change behaviors, or support or empower communities to achieve um, those conservation outcomes that we care about. Yeah, that, it, that's a good point to bring up about that ballot initiative, like even just how you get that process rolling to that point, because I, I guarantee you there were thousands of people that showed up to vote and saw that ballot initiative and were like, I didn't even know this was a thing. I didn't know this was going to be on the ballot. Um, so they don't. So at that point, it's sort of hard to make an informed decision, right? If you haven't, like, like you've mentioned, what is the impact of reintroducing wolves? So you're getting people that are voting, like, basically, do I like wolves? Do I want them around? But just because you reintroduce them doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be in your backyard. It might be a couple hundred miles away and, and you're not ever even going to interact with those wolves. So yeah, that, that's a, a real, that's a real good point to sort of, to bring up of even just something as basic as a ballot initiative, understanding the process to get to that point. Absolutely. And, and understanding those issues can be really helpful moving forward, like with those stakeholder discussions, bringing that point up of like, how do we deal with this power imbalance where some groups voted this in, but those are not necessarily the groups that will have to deal with the negative impacts of wolves. So um, let's, let's, let's kind of dissect that problem and figure out a solution moving forward. So you mentioned a little bit of that framework being sort of broad, right? That sort of everyone could generally apply. What are just some of the sort of highlights of that broad framework that might be a good idea to implement? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I mentioned a little bit of kind of using some social science to understand the problem, like what are the social drivers that led us to where we are now, wherever, whatever issue you're working on. Um, but the next step that I think is really important and increasingly important for a lot of conservation organizations and wildlife agencies is um, defining goals. And so that's often something that's done a lot on kind of the ecological side of things is like, what are our goals here? Okay, we wanna manage, we wanna manage ecosystems, we wanna manage um, wildlife populations in these ways to achieve these kind of um, outcomes. Um, well, there's also outcomes on the social side of things. And so, and that's, um, and, and that's because conservation initiatives can impact people in a lot of different ways. And so an example of a social outcome might be um, of, of a conservation issue or a social goal that we care about is reducing negative impacts to people's livelihoods. Um, so that might be a social goal that we care about with a conservation initiative. Or maybe your social goal is also like 
increasing trust, making sure by the end of your conservation initiative, you haven't alienated the public and stakeholders. In fact, you've, you've made them trust your agency more. Um, or maybe you're trying to, maybe you have these kind of smaller goals on the way that are necessary to achieve your ecological goal. And these smaller social goals might be things like encouraging behavior change. Maybe you're trying to get people to actually go out and, um, and clean up their trash, clean up their property to reduce conflict with bears in residential areas. And doing that then reduces human bear conflicts, which achieves um, kind of positive outcomes for, for bears and for people. And so those are all examples of, of kind of social related goals that social science can help identify um, and then can help monitor as well. And so a lot of times we talk about adaptive management where we monitor wildlife populations over time and, and then use that monitoring to, uh, to change our, our pro programs. Um, and you, we could do the same thing with social science data, which is monitor kind of those social outcomes over time. How are people behaving? How are people accepting this? Um, is this affecting people negatively or positively? And then use that data over time um, to then adjust the way in which programs are, are implemented. I like I like the idea in theory, um, but there's going to be people out there again, sort of this confirmation bias aspect, right? Mm -hmm. That they they are they don't want to see change to a system that maybe they feel already works, and that might be because of it works in in their benefit, right? So, um, you know, we have really the vast majority of all our conservation organizations that are out there are very singular focus, right? They have, you know, either a specific species that they're focused on um, or a specific activity that they're focused on, uh, whether it be hiking or hunting or fishing or, or anything like that. And most state agencies regulate hunting and fishing as well, right? So, you know, any angler or any hunter probably doesn't want a quote unquote non-hunter or especially a quote unquote anti-hunter impacting the decisions on bag limits, season lengths, right? Mm -hmm. Things like that. So for someone like that, that has that sort of confirmation bias, it sort of has that like idea of it works for me and what I want to do. So I don't want to change it. Like how, one, how could it benefit them? Mm -hmm. And then two, how do we convince them that it will actually benefit them? Yes, that's that's a, a million dollar question. I think I, <laughs> it's a great one, um, and something I'm still um, still exploring as well. I would say one of the things that we've seen with the wolf issue in particular, and we talked a little bit about this, the the pendulum swings in policy and an increasing number of ballot initiatives um, around. Um, so these are citizen ballot initiatives of the public trying to have greater say in wildlife management. One argument I might make um, is on, on the importance of integrating social science is that if we don't start integrating um, these kind of diverse values into decision making, then I think we're just going to keep seeing more and more of these um, ballot initiatives, of these pendulum swings in policy. And, and sometimes those pendulum swings will go in a way that won't benefit those who, have, who the system um, has worked for in the past, if that makes sense, because we have the public's values towards wildlife are changing. Um, that's one thing social science research has documented. Um, and, and so with the public's values changing, there might be more kind of ballot initiatives uh, around 
the public trying to manage wildlife um, kind of from the outside if they're not brought in uh, into those decision-making processes. And so I, so I think that's the argument I would make is that for those folks who are like, why, why change? <laughs> is that things are changing um, and, and those changes that are already happening are, are posing increasing challenges for, for agencies, for organizations working on this issue as more and more people try to have a greater say. So if we can institutionalize that say, um, then I think we may be, um, we may have less of these kind of challenges to deal with externally, if that makes sense. Yeah, so basically just sort of give a little, so you don't have mm -hmm. to give everything later. Um, a lot of people would argue, you know, it's the slippery slope idea, right? You give a give an inch, and then it's another inch, and then it's five, and next thing you know, it's a mile, and and you now have no no longer have any say. Um, and I equate that to what I hear a lot from, especially hunters and anglers, is the idea of funding for conservation. Um, it was, you know, the original, really the original conservation movement was built on the backs of hunters and anglers. Um, the vast majority of uh, funding federally is through, you know, license sales, you know, Pittman-Robertson mm -hmm. dollars, um, you know, Dinkle-Johnson Act, things of that nature, right? So they don't, you know, a lot of hunters and anglers don't want to give up that, right? Like there's been an increasing, every couple of years or so you hear like, well, hey, there's more hikers, there's more campers, let's start with the backpack tax, right? Like let's start taxing them so they can contribute. They're using public land, they're using the same resource. And, you know, on the surface, that sounds great. But then you talk to like a hunter and they're like, well, no, I don't want them to pay these taxes because then they're gonna have a seat at the table. And then they're gonna have a say in what decisions are made. And I think that scares a lot of hunters and anglers. What you're saying is, you're having, we're already having these violent swings one way or the other. So instead of let's try to stop those violent swings and sort of try to find that middle ground and try to stay course in that middle ground. Absolutely, exactly. I think um, tides are changing. There's a lot of people who are interested in non-consumptive um, ways of being outside and, and have kind of different values towards wildlife. And I think um, and what we found is that's growing in the past couple of decades. There's been a lot of research from Dr. Mike Benfredo, Dr. Tara Teal, and others in our department and elsewhere who have tracked those values towards wildlife over time. And um, and and what they found is, yeah, the, these this portion of the public it's growing, and they are increasingly trying to figure out how to have a say. Um, and so, if they don't have a say internally, <laughs> then they'll try to have a say through externally through things like ballot initiatives that could. Um, that could take power away from those traditional stakeholders. And so, um, and, and they've actually documented then some backlash, like what you were talking about among more traditional stakeholders as well um, to, those, uh, to those attempts to have greater say. So we just see this kind of conflict escalating. Um, and I think as a social scientist, I see that and I say, hey, wait a minute, <laughs> can we stop? Can we stop for a moment and, and think about really coming together and trying to figure out something that works for everyone? Well, you, you have your work cut out ahead of you trying to figure out how to get two polar opposite sides together um, to try to sort of figure out the, the commonality. And, and that's something that, that I've come to learn as I've talked to more people through the show and, and even some people that I, have, that I couldn't get on but have still talked to them is that there's, there's a lot of commonality. It's just single issue type stuff 
that is very much polar opposite ends. And instead of focusing on the commonality, we tend to focus on those polar opposite ends. Um, I feel like we could probably get more work done if we focused on what we agree on and, you know, just meet, try to meet in the middle as much as we can on those, those polar opposites. Whew, yeah. You have your work cut out ahead of you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I could not agree more with your last statement that finding that commonality is super important. And, and that's what a lot of the research shows is if once we start to see people we're in conflict with as, as people <laughs> who have similar values, like we all care about the outdoors, we all care about wilderness. And that's something that a lot of all these stakeholders have in common. And that can really bring us together. And one of my um, one moment that was really impactful for me is I, I was sitting in to sitting and listening to some discussions about wolf reintroduction here in Colorado and there was all sorts of different stakeholders around the table we had ranchers we had hunters environmental groups animal advocates all these folks who were um, kind of in media arguing with each other now they're all around the table and a simple question was asked of just what what are, is something that you're doing fun over the weekend or something you love about Colorado and everyone's answers all kind of centered around this love for nature and love for the outdoors and it was just amazing to see how um, that love and passion it was something that everyone had in common in that room and something that I think we can really build on. Let's hope let's let's mm -hmm. hope all right so what is sort of like that one big thought um, that you would like to leave listeners with about social science and conservation? Yeah, so I, um, I would say that, you know, understanding kind of the social impacts of programs and designing, um, designing conservation programs, not just kind of the ecological things, side of things, but also the social side of things. I, I, I think it's critical moving forward. And I think it's critical to deal with societal changes and values. I think it's critical to make sure kind of diverse stakeholders are heard in decision-making that maybe groups that haven't traditionally been considered are brought into the conversation. So there's an equity piece of it as well. Um, and also my hope is that it can just kind of um, help our programs be more cost effective. And so if we're spending a lot of time on outreach, on education, on all of those kind of social interventions that I talked about, um, bringing in social science can help us um, make sure that we're doing that a lot more effectively. So it actually reaches and empowers the communities that we care about. Um, so, so I'm excited that there's more and more interest in this and, um, and I'm looking forward to continuing to collaborate with a lot of different conservation practitioners, wildlife managers, and others who are working on these um, working on these challenges. Well said. Rebecca, thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. That'll do it for today's episode. Big thank you to Rebecca for coming on. Big thank you to you for listening. And really the big takeaway I, I want everyone to have from this episode is that there is a need for social sciences in conservation. Uh, there are so many different people in our country now coming, you know, sort of looking at conservation through different lenses, right? Whether they're a hunter or, uh, you know, they fish or they're a hiker uh, or they're a city dweller, right? We need to take all their ideas about conservation issues and practices into account when making decisions. Now, should that be the sole purpose for uh, a decision that's made? Absolutely not, right? We still have to think about, you know, um, 
wildlife needs, habitat needs, landscape needs, uh, you know, even some sort of business and, and, and job needs as well. But the social part has to be part of it, right? We need to make sure that even, for example, you know, the state agency that regulates hunting, whether that's a DCNR or the Pennsylvania Game Commission, for example, uh, we need to make sure that even the general public supports what their mission is. Uh, even though it's not a, you know, in the case of the Pennsylvania Game Commission, it's not a tax subsidized agency, we still need the general public to be on board with the decisions that are being made uh, because there are vastly more people who are not hunters in the state of Pennsylvania and in, in, in any state uh, than there are hunters that are being catered to. So we need to just make sure that even if they don't partake, they understand the reasoning um, and they feel like they're being heard, just like Rebecca stated. Uh, until next week, we're, we're going to talk about a great great organization in Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. I want you to get outside. I want you to take someone with you and I want you to stay wild.